Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England. Episode 165, Bloodshed. Somerset and the Queen had done their utmost to avoid the consequences of Henry's incapacity, and the birth of a son and heir to Henry and Margaret, duly named Edward, was helpful in distracting the world. It's difficult to know exactly when Margaret became York's enemy, but the evidence seems clear by this stage. When her child was born, the Queen looked around for a man she trusted and relied on, and duly selected Somerset as the Prince's godfather. Her records show her giving an annuity payment at this time to Somerset worth a hundred marks, describing him as her most dear cousin, and writing of his good counsel and worthy service. Meanwhile, She'd circulated instructions within the royal household that no one was to contact York in any way on pain of royal displeasure. But anyway, something, something had to be done. In 1422, the king's incapacity on account of the fact that he was 100% focused on his nappies had meant that the exercise of royal authority had been vested in the lords in council and the lords in parliament and so Somerset and the Queen had to call a Parliament to find a solution. Now they'd like to have done that without York, and unaccountably forgot to send an invitation to him. But the bishops, who kindly forwarded the invitation to York, knew that for England to have any chance, the solution arrived at had to be one of unity, and there could be no unity without England's greatest magnate. In what happens next, there are a few decisions to make about motivation, which probably define whether you're a Yorkist or a Lancastrian. Or maybe not. Maybe there are plenty of you out there who just go for a rebel in any given situation. In the words of bad company, I am just a simple man. But anyway, onward. Do you believe Richard of York's public words at this point? I.e., 
that he is motivated by a desire to deliver the good governance that every Englishman deserves, and that he sees this as his hereditary right and duty, that he's loyal to the crown, but needs to cauterise the rotting flesh from the body politic that is Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. Or is this chap motivated primarily by greed, a lust for power and hatred of Beaufort? Maybe, in fact, we don't need to separate the two. Maybe throughout this it's both. Maybe it's always both. What England needed, then, was unity. And actually, throughout this affair, or at least the early years, both Lancaster and York recognised this. Some clever historian somewhere described the Wars of Roses as a period where England discovers the arts of peace. And while this is, without doubt, a rather contrary statement in many ways, it does illustrate that with each swing of the wheel, the winner at that point tries hard to re-establish some kind of consensus that their medieval state had to have to function. The trouble is, there's always just one person they can't quite stomach, one bone sticking in the throat. There's just too much bad blood. Anyway, Richard of York came down to London for the Great Council. With him again came Mowbray, the Duke of Norfolk, once again to help deliver the message as he'd done before. Which tempts me, sadly, into a digression, since one of the families I didn't get to cover a couple of episodes back was in fact the Mowbrays. So, just a quickie, then we'll get back to the story. And a reminder, I've done a page on the website where you can get a summary of the major families in 1450, Beaufort, Holland, Courtney, Neville, Clifford and more. So, we've already met the Mowbray family on a number of occasions, notably, of course, during Richard II's reign, as one of the men who was banished, alongside Henry Bolingbroke. And the current incumbent at the head of the family is John, Duke of Norfolk, and I introduced you to him in episode 162, a bad lad in his salad days, you might remember. The Mowbrays were a substantial family, but they faced a problem or two. First of all, their lands were widely distributed in over 150 properties through 25 counties, which gave them an admin problem. This isn't terribly unusual, however. You might remember how long ago when the Conqueror came to our shores and settled land on his followers, that's how he organised it, to make sure individual barons didn't get too powerful. And it's one of the reasons why the folk who hold land on the Welsh or Northern Marches are so extraordinarily powerful, because unlike everybody else, they hold really consolidated large land holdings, unlike so many of their peers. Problem number two is that the Mowbrays were relative newcomers to the world of East Anglian politics, which is where many of Norfolk's estates were centred. And the strength of his local influence there wasn't good enough, certainly not in the face of the Pools, the Dukes of Suffolk. And finally, we have the problem that the Pastons live in Norfolk. We have the lucky survival of the Paston papers, and so we know more about John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, than he'd readily appreciate. If Norfolk had been a saint, this would have been a good thing for his reputation. As it happens, it was a bad thing for his reputation. Essentially, Norfolk's priority was to build his power base in East Anglia, and so his retinues wander around Norfolk making a nuisance of themselves, for all the world like some two-bit protection racket. Norfolk 
had also been largely excluded from court and national politics in the 1440s, so he never had the same level of influence at court that he really needed to make his local power stick, which is the same problem that Courtney had down in Devon. And so poor old Mowbray was constantly trying to make headway, swimming against the tide. It's pretty clear, though, that John Mowbray essentially shared York's dislike of Somerset. Later in the conflict, he worked harder at avoiding making a decision about which side to back, doing his very best to avoid getting sucked in too far. He became something of a trimmer. York wasn't alone in this attribute, it has to be said. Inevitably, a lot of barons became trimmers, more interested in local than national politics, and eager to avoid making the wrong decision on which side to back, since such a decision could be disastrous for the whole family. Norfolk's rival in East Anglia, John de la Poole, Duke of Suffolk, was to become known as the Trimming Duke, for example. A man we'll talk of later in the wars, Thomas Lord Stanley, would famously hedge his bets. For this, all three, Mowbray, Suffolk, Stanley, have come in for a deal of censure over the centuries. All three of these folks lived a reasonably long life by the standards of their days and died in their beds. Just saying. Oakley Doakley. So, in November 1453, the Great Council assembled. It looks as though there were about 46 peers assembled from a possible 100-odd. Now, York had a plan, which involved the same man who'd helped him on his first attempt to assert his control, the Duke of Norfolk. But it's also very likely that by this time he'd got additional and crucial support from the family that had stood against him at Dartford, the Nevilles. Or at least certainly from one branch of the Neville family, the Earl of Salisbury. And you can see why. From Salisbury's point of view, he's locked in a life-and-death struggle with the Perses, who've aligned themselves with Exeter and, crucially, with Somerset. Salisbury needs friends in this struggle. Meanwhile, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, is locked into a struggle for control of his estates in South Wales with none other than Somerset. More good reasons for the Neville family to work with Somerset's enemy, the Richard of York. And so, there he was, in front of the council, Norfolk went on to the attack, launching a vehement denunciation of Somerset and his failure in Normandy, branding him a traitor. At all points, York and their allies always maintain the same line. They're as loyal as loyal can be to the king. It's just the dirty, rotten scoundrels around him that they're after. And Norfolk must have been eloquent, or the assembled magnates must have been feeling delicate, or maybe they knew full well that York was behind this attack and that they needed York, because Mowbray's words hit home. Somerset was arrested and thrown into the tower to await judgment. A group of men went to find Somerset, who was found in the Queen's apartment. He was arrested and thrown into the tower to await judgment. Seeing him dragged off to the tower is unlikely to have improved the Queen's mood towards York and his allies. York then had Courtney, the Earl of Devon, freed from Wallingford Castle, where he'd been thrown during his dispute with the Bonvilles. York had everyone swear that they'd support the King honestly and faithfully which actually was as much about everyone supporting him, York, as it was about ensuring loyalty to the king. Richard, Duke of York, was back, 
at the centre of politics. But it is notable that there was no final decision made about how the realm was to be governed long term. And at every step it's evident that York had his own branding problem. The peers weren't falling over themselves to hand over the reins to York. There wasn't a powerful atmosphere of trust. But nonetheless it was decided that the council needed to reconvene again in January 1454 to make more permanent arrangements. Well, as you can imagine, the whole place went potty with intrigue and gossip. There's a newsletter that survives in the Paston Papers which gives us an insight into what was going on from a writer who was obviously sympathetic to Norfolk. At court, Buckingham and the Queen desperately tried to rouse the King from his stupor, dangling his baby son in front of his eyes to rouse him. I have a mental image of the Queen's increasingly desperate pleadings with her unresponsive hub. There was an atmosphere of fear, an expectation of violence. The Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor, a political friend of Somerset, surrounded himself with an armed guard. Buckingham ordered 2,000 livery badges, presumably with men to put them on. All the magnates gathered their retinues for the trip down to the big smoke. York, rather sneakily, sent a supply of arms and armour separately to make sure they were on hand if needs be. The Duke of Somerset might be in the Tower, but don't think that meant he was out of action. Oh dearie me no, not a bit of it. His spies were reportedly everywhere. The news on the street was that the Queen herself was going to enter the lists. She had prepared a paper demanding that she be made Regent of England. From here on in, Margaret will come more and more to the fore to fight for her own destiny, but probably, even more importantly to her, for the destiny and future of her son. In one of the Paston letters, the author comments, The Queen is a great and strong laboured woman, for she spares no pain to sue her things to an intent and conclusion to her power. By which the author meant, that by 1454 many folks were beating a path to the Queen's door to petition her, because they knew full well she was no pushover, and if you had her on your side, she was a powerful and determined advocate. In claiming the regency, she had a difficult case, but not an impossible one. Isabella, after all, had officially reigned during Edward III's minority, and Eleanor of Aquitaine had been given her moments. In France, regency from the Queen had been much more common. Isabeau, for example, under the mad King Charles. And it's clear that York was by no means away and clear. He was no more completely trusted than was Margaret. There were plenty of peers who met in Westminster that January who were worried about York's populism, worried that he'd turn out simply to be a power seeker. But despite all the worries... This was to be at last York's moment. And on the 13th of February 1454, York's leadership of the council was formally established by a group of 28 lords then present. York was to be primus inter pares. He was to be restored to the lieutenancy of Ireland, which was to be taken off the Lancastrian and, rather cowardly, Earl of Wiltshire. There was some accommodation for the Queen after the rejection of her bid to be regent. The infant Prince Edward was confirmed as Prince of Wales, Duke of Cornwall and Earl of Chester. And York himself specifically recognised the Lancastrian succession. 
Even so, it was not until March 1454 that York was formally declared to be the protector of the realm in the same way that Humphrey of Gloucester had been, eight months after Henry had fallen into his living death. The Archbishop of Canterbury had died, the great seal of state was therefore no longer usable, and so something had had to be done, because no governance at all was now possible. A formal inspection was carried out of the king, and after that final straw had been clutched at, York was made protector and defender of the realm, just as Humphrey of Gloucester had been. The thing to note here, really, is not that York was made protector and defender of the realm, it's that it took the body politic eight months to take this decision, and really only after all other avenues had been explored. It's hardly a ringing endorsement. There's definitely something going on with York, and I don't believe it has anything to do with Stacey's mum. He didn't automatically gain the support of either commons or lords. There's something about York that made people wary of him. He seems to have lacked a certain amount of charisma. A proud man, insisting on his rights, maybe rather cold or pompous or aloof. His motives can certainly be read as the genuine desire to see the return of good governance to the kingdom in support of the king, but he never really escaped that charge of acting at least in part in his own self-interest and as part of the faction. Maybe one of the tragedies of these civil wars was that there are plenty of people acting to try to avoid conflict, but no one quite managed to rise above it as they'd managed to do in the years of Henry's minority. From there on in, York as protector does, however, appear to have done everything he could to be the embodiment of impartiality, the unity candidate. But he still doesn't quite entirely manage it. He goes after the Speaker of the House of Commons, for example, on what are probably private grounds. York also raised a few eyebrows by appointing Salisbury to be Chancellor. It had become normal for the Archbishop of Canterbury to be Chancellor, and it's another indication that the Neville-York axis is now in operation. But it's also perfectly defensible on the grounds of appointing a powerful and competent man to an important post. York was also appointed to be Captain of Calais, Somerset being removed from the post he had. In fact, this was to be an epic fail for York. York was keen to get his hands on the place, but when his officers arrived to take control, they met the stony face of Richard Woodville, Lord Rivers. Rivers refused point-blank to let York take control, claiming that the garrison were in rebellion over pay. And in fact, Somerset proved much more capable in this one thing than did York, managing to keep the garrison in the readies. York never did manage to get control of Calais during the First Protectorate. In other ways, though, York provided effective and decisive governance, every bit as he'd promised, and within reason, on a pretty even-handed basis. Lancastrians, such as the Earls of Wiltshire and Shrewsbury, were given office. Patronage was handed out to Lancastrians, such as the Tudor boys, Jasper and Edmund, the Queen, and to Buckingham. While Warwick, for example got absolutely zip in this period. York did his best to put a council in place that was equitable, but despite his efforts, it came to barely a dozen, mainly his own supporters and bishops. Thus his protectorate had legitimacy, but it could not yet claim impartiality. He squashed the Neville-Percy-Exeter-Cromwell scrubble, at least for the moment. In this, Egremont, Richard Percy and Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter, 
played right into York's hands. Because York potentially had a problem in looking factional here. The support of Salisbury had been crucial to gaining power and Salisbury was presumably expecting some reward. But Exeter was something of a hothead and a fool, as the Hollands tended to be. He was filled with fury and rage at York's position. It was he, himself, Exeter, not York, who was the rightful protector and defender. He, Exeter, was the great-grandson of John of Gaunt. What were they thinking? So he and Egremont distributed livery badges, gathered an army, made a pact with the Scots and prepared to fight. But York arrived with a judicial procession through the north, condemned the lot of them as traitors, and the idea of rebellion melted away. Exeter fled south, but was dragged out of his Westminster sanctuary and flung into jail in Pontefract in the north of England. Egremont and Richard Percy were picked up by Thomas Neville and ended up in Newgate Jail in London. Essentially, York was able to deliver for Salisbury and Neville in their struggle with the Percys. Essentially, York was able to deliver for Salisbury and the Nevilles in their struggle with the Percys and still looked like a decisive, effective, impartial leader, able to do what Henry had not, establish the rule of royal law in the North. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. York also started to tackle the enormous problem of the government's debt. In essence, the government's expenditure came from two areas, the royal households, king, queen and prince, and the standing garrison in Calais. How simple life was in those days. And yet income was still insufficient for these expenses, so York put in place plans for a massive cutback in the king's household, while being careful not to touch the queen's household. All this is all very good, but there was an elephant in the room, and indeed a large pile of elephant droppings. York couldn't tackle the big one, Somerset. York either had to choose cooperation with Somerset, or to bury him, and he'd really made his choice in November 1453. 
because I guess to him it seemed like no choice at all, since to cooperate, he felt pretty sure, meant putting himself and his family at risk of being buried in turn, certainly politically. And so he dare not release Somerset from the Tower. And yet, nor could he bring him to trial. Because quite simply, the council and peerage wouldn't wear it. And the likelihood was that Somerset in a trial would be acquitted and then York would really be in the elephant dropping. And so Somerset sat in the tower in stasis, his spies everywhere, between times. By November 1454, York had established a protectorate that had some legitimacy, could fairly claim to have established good governance, but had not yet gained wide acceptance. With more time, he could maybe do so, but on that, he was entirely dependent for the king remaining as he was, demonstrably incapable, rather than awake and just rubbish. With time, maybe he'd be able to heal the breach with the Queen, and in fact, that was an imperative to his long-term health and career prospects, since at some point, of course, the Prince would gain his majority, and he needed to be in the right place when that happened. But time was a commodity York didn't have. Because in December, Henry suddenly regained his senses as quickly as he'd lost them. On the 30th of December, the Queen took his son to see him. Henry asked what his name was and was told Edward. According to one chronicler, Henry held up his hands and thanked God thereof. Another chronicler, on the other hand, has Henry look at his son wonderingly and exclaim that his little baby must be the son of the Holy Spirit. Which was hardly helpful, given it seemed to give some weight to the rumours about Henry's lack of involvement in the conception of said prince. But never mind, his ministers all rushed to see him, everyone wept for joy and there was happiness and smiles all round. I doubt York was smiling. The old divisions immediately reappeared. You can bet that the Queen gave Henry a pretty clear update and view of what needed to happen next, and filled the royal ears with bile aplenty. And Henry duly obliged, with a complete reversal of everything York had done. By the 26th of January, Somerset was out of the tower. Treason charges all dropped. York was stripped of the captaincy of Calais. The order came from the King to the Chancellor Salisbury to release Exeter. Salisbury tried to ignore the order. After all, Exeter was a violent idiot. But the order stood. Salisbury resigned as Chancellor in disgust and was replaced by the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Bourchier. Henry got Somerset and York in a room together and told them to kiss and make up and made them swear to hold the peace until the 20th of June 1455 on pain of being fined 20,000 marks. The reason for that was to allow time for the king to put a group of lords together to review and make a ruling on the dispute between Somerset and York. A dispute the king chose to regard as a purely personal matter rather than an issue of good governance or treacherous behaviour. So, what to make of all that then? On the one hand, you've got to say that Henry is the king, he's woken up to find all his policies messed up, he's perfectly entitled to say sorry, thanks, but no thanks. So many of his actions were perfectly proper. Whether they were wise or not is an entirely different matter. It was certainly no way to keep York and Salisbury on board. But in the main, the rest of the political community would probably have accepted it. The release of the violent and rebellious Exeter, though, 
was clearly acting in favour of one particular faction, with nothing to do with the impartial role of a king. He was a rebel against the authority of Parliament, acting on behalf of the king, pure and simple. It made it clear that Henry perceived York as having acted purely in his own self-interest. His acceptance of Salisbury's resignation as Chancellor made pretty much the same point. York and Salisbury fled to their estates. York had no faith whatsoever in Henry's review. They had little doubt that retribution in some shape or form was on its way and that there was only one choice open to them and one choice only. And that there was but one choice open to them and one choice only, to prepare for war. Warwick clearly felt the same, not just as part of the Neville family, but because he now could expect no joy from a ruling on his dispute with Somerset on his lands in Wales. Things now moved quickly to a climax. While York, Salisbury and Warwick gathered their forces, on the 21st of April 1455 the King issued writs for a kind of quasi-parliament to be held on the 21st of May at Leicester. Quasi-parliament because the Assembly was broader than a great council but with no burgesses and no elections. The stated purpose was to deal with threats to the King. Now, if you were a Yorkist, the format would suggest a few things and none of them good. Why meet in Leicester? Why would anyone go to Leicester except to see the world's greatest rugby team? Well, because it was in the heartlands of Lancastrian power and loyalty. Because Somerset was deeply unpopular in London, and not even the king could be sure any more of London's loyalty. The merchants of London despaired of the inability of the king to impose law and the safety of trade. Why the slightly odd format? Because it could be carefully controlled. And what threats against the king? Surely that had to refer to York. As it happens, the writs didn't reach York, Salisbury and Warwick until the 18th of May, but they had enough friends to get wind of what was going on, and trouble was written all over it. At very least, a public humiliation such as had followed Dartford, and at worst, the same fate that had befallen Humphrey of Gloucester, who went to a strange-looking parliament outside London and came home in a box. Somerset seems to have felt very confident in his position, but even so, he could have prepared a bit more carefully. By the time the king and his household set out from London for the journey to Leicester on the 21st of May, the three Yorkist leaders were at Royston, just 30 miles north of St Albans. By now, the Yorkists had probably been joined by Henry Bourchier, Earl of Essex and brother of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Norfolk was relatively close by. As it happens, he didn't arrive until the following day and all the action was over. It is quite possible his days of trimming were now beginning. So I am imagining a surprisingly large number of tea breaks and long lunches on Norfolk's long march. The Yorkist earls and duke had a plan to intercept the royal party at St Albans, a town on the road between London and Leicester, and impose their will by force. At their back was an army of 3,000 of their household men and tenants. Somerset and the King, meanwhile, only seemed to have realised their danger on the 18th of May. Since then, at last, Somerset had letters sent out to the towns on the route to provide men for the King. But despite their danger, 
they still pressed on. At Watford, just north of London, they suddenly realised that the Yorkists were already outside St Albans with a much larger force than the King's 2,000 men, and they panicked, gently. Panicked because Henry sacked Somerset as constable, in an obvious measure to appease the Yorkists. Gently, because on the morning of 22nd of May, they nonetheless entered St Albans, at around nine in the morning, rather than running away. The new constable now was Buckingham. Buckingham was seen as much more moderate, much less incendiary than Somerset. And Buckingham was confident he could talk the Yorkists round, smooth things over. And indeed there were talks, during which Buckingham finally realised that the talking was over. York's demand was that the king should hand over whomever he accused of treason, carte blanche, a demand no king could accept and still retain his freedom and honour, given he'd already publicly cleared Somerset of any wrongdoing. Buckingham played for time. Withdraw just for one night, he pleaded, until the bishops arrive, and can help us all negotiate and find an answer to this most regrettable problem. Now, the town of St Albans was defended by a crude ditch and embankment, with barricades that could be swung shut to close off the entrances to the streets. The king had with him the far greater assembly of leading magnates and peers. They included his half-brother Jasper Tudor, the Earl of Pembroke, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, Buckingham, Wiltshire, and barons such as Clifford, Roos and Dudley. Significantly, he also had with him the Earl of Devon, the same Courtney who had stood with York at Dartford, probably just in the wrong place at the wrong time, his allegiance not solid either way yet. Also, there was a chap called William Neville, Lord Falkenberg, the son of the other side of the Neville family, the Westmoreland side of the family. Anyway, it was to Lord Clifford that the defence of St Albans was entrusted. The Cliffords were traditional supporters of the Percys in the north and were equally threatened by the rise of Neville power. By ten o'clock, Warwick's men were getting bored, as you do when you're spoiling for a fight and all you can hear is talking. And Warwick was getting bored too. Twenty-seven years old, as rich as Croesus, ready to stake his claim and swash his buckle. And so Warwick and his men attacked the barricades and York, Salisbury and Bourchier followed suit. In the centre of St Albans, the royal standard was raised and around it sat the king and his household, his magnates and his barons. They appear to have been quietly confident. Maybe they thought the royal standard would be sufficient to deter the attackers, or maybe they just underestimated the strength of the Yorkist army, for as yet there appears to have been no panic, and significantly, no donning of armour by the king and his magnates. Clifford was pretty tough, though, and for an hour the Yorkists got precisely nowhere. And so maybe the faith of their leaders was justified. Things were now beginning to look grim for York. Failure here would be curtains for him and his family. Attainder and forfeiture beckoned, the two words hated by every man of property the loss of everything, not just for now, not just for him, not just a fine, but the loss of everything for his family forever. His family rubbed out from the pages of the history yet to be written. The history of the swashbuckling Warwick starts right here. He's been a rather shadowy, conventional figure up to now, 
in the shadow of the older head of the Neville family, Salisbury. But it's Warwick who leads some men to find another way round, with one of his captains, Sir Robert Ogle. With 600 men-at-arms and archers, red-jacketed, wearing the badges of Warwick's ragged staff, Warwick led a flanking attack on some palisades at the top of Hollywell Street. With the archers covering the charge, the men-at-arms smashed through the palisades. Over the garden walls they climbed, behind Clifford's unsuspecting men, breaking out between two inns called the Quay and the Checker. Pouring into the town with the blowing of trumpets and cries of Warwick! Warwick! The rebels were into the town and charging towards the king's standard. Only then did the magnates gathered around the king realise that panic would have been a better option, and the frantic donning of armour followed. But it was all way too late. At the barricades, the trumpet calls and cries behind them caused panic, and Salisbury and York were able to break through and start entering the town. At this point, Warwick issued orders that showed just how much things had changed. He ordered his men to spare the commons and kill the lords. It's a long way from the days of William the Marshal and his despair that although having waded heedlessly and joyfully through the blood of multiple oiks, he's gone and killed the poor old Count of Persh. The group of household men and nobles gathered around the king were engulfed in a shower of arrows. They all reacted a bit differently. Plenty of them legged it. Wiltshire, not the bravest of men, dressed himself up like a monk and slipped away. A chronicler rather snidely remarked that he was, quote, afraid of losing his beauty, though my granny always used to say, beauty is as beauty does. Northumberland, Clifford, both were cut down and killed. Buckingham was badly wounded. Lord Dudley was hit by an arrow in his face, but both of them managed to find sanctuary in the great abbey nearby. The king, half-armoured, was himself nicked by an arrow. Now, Henry was not one for cursing. When really pushed, he would use the word forsooth, mild by anyone's standard. Given that he'd avoided battle for all of his 33 years, Lord knows how he was feeling at this point. But after the arrow had passed on its way, he was prompted to a curse. Forsooth, forsooth, he do foully to smite a king anointed so. Ouch! Henry was captured and taken to the abbey with all the respect York, Salisbury and Warwick could muster. And what of the arch-villain? Somerset had fought throughout the battle, with his 19-year-old son there, Henry Beaufort, by his side. He might have been a rubbish commander in France, but at least he knew war, and he knew equally that for him there could be no mercy. And to do him his due, he and his son fought shoulder to shoulder to the last, barricading themselves into another tavern appropriately called the castle. Henry was so badly wounded that his lacerated body was dragged onto a cart and left for dead. Somerset himself fought on, but in the end was overwhelmed, was dragged out of the tavern and brutally hacked to death in the mud and blood of the streets of St Albans. And so the first Battle of St Albans was over, and York was once more in a position to impose his will on the king. But something very fundamental had changed. This time, noble blood had been spilt, and that's going to change everything. 
but it's not going to change the fact that that's quite enough excitement for one week. Next time we'll be back with the first protectorate. Meanwhile, I have some donators to thank. Firstly, some of my beloved monthly donators. Nancy, Mary, Bernard, Oak, James, Russell, Jubal, Jim, Cathy and Simon. And a special mention this week for Julie. Really generous, Julie. Thank you very much. And may you forever drive to work. And many thanks to all my other generous donators this week. Tehas, Eva, William, Philip, Bill, who almost qualifies as a monthly donator. He's donated so much. Mike, James, and last but not least, and also super generous, Matthew. And thanks to everyone who's commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes, and all that sort of thing. And to all of you who listen in. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>